0: From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous shows. On today's show...
1: This is what presents every single day. The challenges are real. They can be devastating to some people. Um, So the point is here that these services help. Um, is it perfect? No. Is there more work to do always? But they have systemic we have systemically helped work with our public school system to put these types of services directly in the schools to help students, to help families, so that ultimately they can access the, the education and a job and have economic mobility.
0: We hear from David Russ, Chief Executive Officer of Say
2: Yes Buffalo. And we close out with but I'm not a big guy, so you know, but my spirit is big, my heart is big. So I knew, I—it's no way I can give up.
0: Artist and Buffalo native, Valentino Dixon. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, thanks for listening. We start with Jay Moran's conversation with David Rust, CEO of Say Yes Buffalo. The two speak about post-secondary pathways in education, career-wise Greater Buffalo, and the organization's newly announced apprenticeship program. Uh, a real pleasure. Uh-
3: so much to talk about and when it comes to education and, and you've uh, agreed to, to take on any issue here for us uh, this morning. We do appreciate that. But uh, let's maybe just take a, a little moment to, to step back. I can recall the announcement in 2011 about Say Yes. It sounded like a fantasy that uh, kids from uh, Buffalo Public Schools, charter schools, would have an opportunity to get scholarships to go to whatever secondary institution that they, they sought. Um that was the fantasy, or it sounded like a fantasy back then. Where are we right now?
1: It is real. Say yes has been ingrained in this community. It is making a difference, both in terms of educational outcomes for students in the city of Buffalo, those looking to move on to college as an employer, and we can talk about all that today, Jay. So uh, we're in a terrific spot. You know, we launched this in 2011, 2012, as you're aware, and it was a big promise that was made, and one that is unique and rare in our country. Uh, So we stepped out with the promise that every student that completed their high school degree in the city of Buffalo, whether in a public or charter school, that we would support their tuition and in some cases more to go on to a post-secondary program. We view that as a certificate, a two-year degree, a four-year degree. Uh, We've since added on apprenticeship. We can talk about that later, too. And it was incredible. You know, students can attend any public college in New York State, you know, our strong SUNY and CUNY system and 100 private colleges around the country. You know, that was funded through the generosity of a lot of individuals here in Western New York. It was strangers helping strangers initially. You know, when we started this, uh, we secured $29 million to fund scholarships for Buffalo Public School graduates over the last decade. That was from the fall of 2013 through the spring of 2023. If it worked, we decided that we would try and endow a scholarship fund so that this promise of post-secondary for everyone would be here forever. Uh, we are wrapping up our campaign June 30th. Uh, we have around six or seven million dollars to go, which means we've raised 58 or 59 million dollars for students in Buffalo. And if you think the po- about the power of that endowment, Jay, you know, a hundred years from now, that'll be bigger, still helping students. It's an extraordinary investment in young people here. And you know, there's some good things happening in Buffalo. We can directly talk about things, or there's, there's opportunities to do better. And I would just say. If, you know, everybody in this community has potential. Not everyone has been given opportunity. And Say Yes is about opportunity for all. And, you know, access to a good education and a good job is going to help us, period. And that was the root of Say Yes. Uh, so when you were recalling where we were 11 years ago, the promise still is still here. And uh, it's going to be here forever.
3: Uh, one of the things that we could talk about that is a good trend, yeah. high school graduation rates in the city of Buffalo, I believe, what, up – 30 points. Is, do I have that correct? Um, you feel that's directly attributed to the, the existence of Say Yes?
1: We've been a part of it. Mm-hmm. I have a deep respect for the work that happens in our public schools every single day. They do good work and they do it often in challenging circumstances. So we absolutely did not do that alone. I think we had a part of it. I think the district would say that as well. You know, we are a key strategic partner to the public schools. So you know, if you're gonna do the work we're doing, if you're asking people for their time, their political will and their resources, you have to deliver on outcomes. So a couple data points I would point at, yes, the graduation rate in the Buffalo Public Schools has gone up from forty-nine percent to seventy-nine percent. It is held at that as regents exams have returned. Post secondary entrance is up seventeen percent, post-secondary completion is up fourteen percent. So you'd be hard pressed to find a city anywhere else in the country that hasn't been able to maintain systems level gains like that over a decade. There's a lifetime of work in front of us. You know, nobody's building statues of themselves, but we are happy about the progress. It has helped thousands of students. You know, if we had stayed where we were at a 49% graduation rate, today we would have 4,386 less graduates of our public schools. Um, that is brain and economic power that would be sitting on the sidelines in our community. So yeah, the data points have worked. Uh, and again, there's some work to do, but you know, it's come a long way, Jay.
3: I would think that for the most part, most parents probably, I know I would be very uh, attuned to the fact that there's an opportunity for my child to, to go uh, to a post-secondary or to a secondary education, post-secondary education opportunity uh, free of charge. So, but at the same time, there's got to be, I think, that student will. How has Say yes gone about making sure that the students, the, those kids in those classrooms, know what's out there for them?
1: Well, there's a lot of avenues to approach that. You know, when we, first of all, when we were fundraising for this 10, 11 years ago, um, we got some fair questions about, you know, if students don't have proper food, clothing, shelter. If they need extended learning time support, a scholarship ultimately won't matter. So, you know, I'd mentioned we employ around 200 people now at Yes, Buffalo. Amazing team, 70 percent people of color, working hard every day to ensure that students can reach his or her full potential. And we've built a suite of programs in the public schools and in partnership with our colleges and employers now to ensure that students can access that promise. Much of this is funded by the public schools, Erie County, and the city of Buffalo at this point in time. Our public partners have really stepped forward. So exactly what is available is as students enter the public schools, we screen them for social-emotional readiness. Uh, We're now instructing three-year-old programs in Buffalo's public schools. This is a model co-funded by Erie County and the Buffalo public schools. So students enter as three-year-olds. They get full access to the district and the SAS services and supports. They move directly to the district's universal pre-K program and right into kindergarten. So amazing early access to supports. Uh, We have social service caseworkers in buildings. We have health caseworkers in buildings. We've helped to work with all of our behavior and mental health agencies to embed a satellite mental health clinic in every public school in the city. Um, We have civil legal services available. So if a family is having challenges with family law, immigration, housing, access to benefits, that volunteer lawyers will help them secure what they need so that they can ultimately be successful. Uh, the Buffalo Public Schools is funding after school in every building. We partner with the Buffalo Public Schools on these incredible Saturday academies. You know, if you come out on Saturday, Jay, buildings are open. There's two meals. There's structured recreation where students can learn to swim and play soccer and basketball. There's one-to-one math and English. There's enrichment programming where students are learning to build a satellite using Z-Lab goggles. Or they're coding, coding for kids. There's wow. engineering for kids. Amazing talent discovery, you know. i um, That's just what's available, you know, in the K-12 system, which is comprehensive. You know, as students move on then, we've got mentoring available for students. There's internships. There's a Boys and Men of Color Initiative, which is a mentoring program and a Big Brother-type program for students as they move along their pathway. Um, You know, I could go on, but that is, you know, what is different than we had a decade ago. And I guess the point I'm making is we've had pockets of greatness in Buffalo for a long time, and we need those pockets of greatness, good programming. This work, work was meant to be systemic, to provide access to opportunity to everybody, and then build a suite of programming in the public schools that would allow students to ultimately get the services he or she may need on their path to a post secondary education.
3: In talking about those services, I think you somewhat framed it, but I want to get into it the obstacles, right? One, you know, if, I think if my parents had heard that you could uh, get free education uh, in four years when I was going into high school, they would have. Uh, made sure that, uh, you know, get after it, go after it, you know, and you know, I'm fortunate enough that I did actually make it through a four-year school somehow. But, uh, the point I'm trying to get to here is, or the question is, what's, what's, what are we seeing? And this must be just be something that you're learning year in and year out. What are those obstacles for kids to find their way to obviously a, a, an incredible opportunity?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the obstacles are plenty, right? And they show up every day in the public schools. We we often say our students have complicated lives and they are forced to grow up quicker than they may need to. But the reality is this is what's in front of them. So, you know, I think a lot of people in this community care about poverty and understand the impact it can have. It is really challenging. It can be devastating, right? You're talking about taking a couple buses every single day. You may not have had a meal the night before or a meal that morning, Um our, the parents of our students are working often multiple jobs to pull together their living, often living in substandard housing, and this is what presents every single day. The challenges are real; they can be devastating to some people. Um, so the point is here that these services help. Um, is it perfect? No. Is there more work to do? Always, but they have systemic. We have systemically helped work with our public school system to put these types of services directly in the schools to help students to help families so that ultimately they can access the the education and a job and have economic mobility. You know, at the end of the day, I think, Jay, we want similar things, um, access to a safe street, a good home, access to a good education and opportunity after that. And this is working to build the infrastructure so that we can get to that end in mind, you know, a post-secondary degree and access to a good job so that students don't have the challenges that they, they have today. Twenty years from now, their families don't.
3: Talking about... Um the realities of poverty. I'm curious if, if you have an understanding of this or whether it's anecdotal or or through statistics. The graduation rate's much better than the the, the city of Buffalo, but what about the the problems of poverty, uh, the reality of poverty in the city of Buffalo? I, I know for a long time it was always somewhat, uh, I, I hate to use the word championed about, but that Buffalo was the third poorest city in, in the country. I don't know if that's still the case, but what about that? Are those issues are, even though there's success showing up in graduation rates and kids going off to college, are the are the, the challenges maybe even greater now than they were 10 years ago?
1: So that's the problem. Like To me, it's what are we going to do about the solutions, right? And say yes is a long-term solution to economic mobility, to help poverty. I mean, I viewed... We can be viewed as working in the education space, we actually do. I view us working in the education space, the young person space, the economic mobility and economic development space, and also anti-poverty, working against the conditions. And you know, we have the scholarship promise. All those programs are meant to protect the investment of the scholarship and alleviate the challenges that got us here in the first place. Now, you know, I've got the, the family income of our, our students right here. You know, For our students that are enrolled in college right now, Certificate two year degree or four year degree 34% had family income below $25,000. So that equates to living in poverty. 40% are below 30,000. It is right there. 55% are below 40,000 and two thirds are below 50,000. Those are challenging economic means. You know, so we view Say Yes not just as let's get a certificate two year degree or four year degree. We want students to get a good-paying job after, right? And right now, data is pegging a living wage as forty-five to 55000 in the region. We want students to have access to those jobs and have a, a career progression that's going to allow them to earn a good living and not have to live in the challenging circumstances many of them have grown up in, Jay.
3: they say yes, uh, we'll call them kids say as scholars how's it's, that say as yeah, scholars. Like scholars uh no of course now we've had some returns right we've uh, seen them go off to college and uh graduate what are we seeing from our say as scholars after they graduate are they getting
1: those types of jobs that uh, that you're targeting so i'll talk a little bit about the students, then the jobs, and then where we're going okay. to, because there is we are growing in our workforce access initiatives and portfolio at yes. But to start with, we have three thousand plus college completers. Sixty-two uh, percent have completed a bachelor's degree, thirty-four percent an associate's degree, four percent a certificate. Uh, the common themes we're seeing are human services, business, communications, and sciences for the bachelors. Our associates are often in medical, criminal justice, and business fields, and then certificates are largely medical and criminal justice. So we're seeing the types of degrees that our students are coming out with. Um, we ran some data a few years back, and we wanted to understand students that had completed a two-year degree or a four-year degree with, say, support, what was their wage attainment a few years post-degree completion compared to, say, the suburban markets. And we wanted to understand job access. So there was a wage gap. You know, and this is a, you've probably seen some of the data out of the Community Foundation around the isolation index in town, which is significant. It often means it can be a who-do-you-know town when it comes to jobs. So, you know, and also I just shared that data on family income. One of the lessons we've learned is because you finish the college, we want to help you get the job, right? We needed to play a direct role in that. And also free college can be too expensive for some students. Hmm. You know, about 70% of students that complete um, their high school degree, are taking advantage of the Say Scholarship. The other 30% are going right to work. So we started to build and innovate around what are options for that 30% and to help students get quicker pathways into the workforce, which also allows us to help students directly access good jobs. And we settled on what we were calling a modern youth apprenticeship program. So we launched this work two years ago. Students that graduate Buffalo Public Schools, they can go – Directly to work at places like m and Bank, Riches, Wegmans, Moog, the Buffalo News. Um, There's opportunities Opportunities, there. yeah. And it's a three-year model for the most part. There's some differentiation within that. And over the course of three years, they're working 15 hours a week year one, 20 hours a week year two, 25 year three. They're taking one to two courses per semester. And the goal is at the end, they've got a certificate or a two-year degree and a job access at the back end. So a, a very relevant example of that is we've got a young man – Damien that graduated from Hutch Tech. He's working in accounting at M&T. They've got him in accounts receivable. He is taking business and finance courses related to the job at Hilbert College. He's in the second year of his apprenticeship. And on the back end, he's going to have at minimum that certificate or two-year degree and a job offer from M&T Bank in the $45,000 range or above. Uh, We had another young man that is working at Tesla now. He got a one-year mechatronics degree from Northland. Okay. And he is making sixty-seven thousand dollars at Tesla with the one year program through the apprenticeship model. So So, this is
3: a twenty year old who's making sixty-seven thousand dollars a year. Wow.
1: Quickly. So I think it's important for SAS to continue to innovate and to meet the needs of our students and families. So, you know, when you ask what our students are doing, we are always we're a degree bearing organization. Those three thousand plus students that have earned a certificate, a two year degree, a four year degree. Many of them are working here in the region, taking on good jobs. We're always going to do that, and the apprenticeship work is another part of our portfolio that we can help direct, directly link students to the workforce in a meaningful way to move to you know family living wages here, Jay.
3: We're talking with uh, David Russ, the executive director of Say Yes Buffalo. Lots to talk about here in this hour of uh, what's next. Uh, just jumping back, it, we, we touched upon those, uh, those Saturday programs that are uh, all the school buildings are open how many what do we know how many kids are taking advantage of of those opportunities i mean your realm is you know you're you're, you've got a kind of an expansive realm here and where you seem to have a a hand in a little bit of everything but do do we understand how how popular those particular opportunities are
1: they're incredibly popular you know the year before the pandemic hit we were on track for almost seventy thousand visits on saturdays in buffalo Um, so there's 23 or 24 designated community schools uh, they're each open once a month. They're spread around the city. And so if you come out this Saturday, you'll see a couple hundred people in the buildings there. Um, and they work, too. You know, I think, again, I go back to when you ask people their time, their political will, and their money. You have to provide outcomes. You know, we've learned that once students show up three times to a Saturday academy, their academic scores are going up, their school attendance is going up, and any type of discipline referrals are dropping. Wow. So that's an investment that is, is proving returns. Um, academically and socially. So it was, I think, a really strong vision. So the resources for this were largely led by the majority leader, Crystal People Stokes. I mean, she was a champion of the community schools model and brought the resources to Buffalo. You know, at that point in time, we worked closely with the district to execute so that people would show up. I mean, people weren't used to coming to a school on a Saturday, you know, (laughs) we, uh, we hired an amazing woman to lead the work, Tanya Staples. And we always wanted to know if we were going to have a party and would anybody show up (laughs) and people are showing up, you know? So, um, and as we've returned from the pandemic over the last few years, we are seeing attendance increasing again, year by year. So broadly utilized open for all. And it's a great visit if you ever want to come out, Jay,
3: I would love to come out Definitely. Uh, pandemic, you've brought it up a couple of times here now. Uh, what kind of setback was that for, say yes, and just you know, overall uh, education, not only here in the city of Buffalo, I guess, but, uh, and we most certainly have heard about it elsewhere across the country, but what about it? You know, you, you, you're you probably there sweating over the realities of all of these things and how to, how to counteract uh, the reality of, of, of the pandemic. What was it like?
1: Well, the fact is it happened at the same point in time. We were dealing with a lot of racial injustice in the country, and you, you Put these two things together, and it was a really challenging time for young people. Um, so, one of the things we did was we, in partnership with Erie County and the Buffalo Public Schools, and a lot of community-based organizations and churches and childcare centers, opened up virtual learning centers. The county funded the bulk of it. The Buffalo Public Schools committed financial resources as well. And one of the things we were hearing is that parents were had to leave their job because they had to be home with their students, and that was bad economically, bad socially. So. You know, we opened up 50 virtual learning centers, um, 3,000 students were dropped off every day so they could do their virtual learning work, have a few meals, some recreation time. That was one example. A lot of our programs were live. We were delivering food. I mean, there were stories of, you know, everyday people in Buffalo doing extraordinary things every day to help their neighbors and to help their, their community. I think coming out of this, I think we saw that the virtual learning was really difficult and that everyone was, was happy to get back live. But... You know, the fact is people really suffered during that. You know, you saw that one in seven adults in the community were hungry and a lot of people lost their jobs. I think we are still below the total number of jobs in the region that we had before the pandemic. So the pandemic may be over, but the impact is not.
3: Um, When it comes to uh, your workforce, it was interesting how you mentioned that 70 percent are people of color. I think you said you have almost 200 people Mm -hmm. on staff, obviously intentional to have people of color working inside the the city inside the city schools for say yes
1: yeah it's important period i think regardless of industry regardless of what type of work you're doing so we are a diverse organization we're stronger for that we have amazing talented individuals we often say say yes is a lifestyle not a job there's (laughs) a deep commitment to the work and our goal is that people have the opportunity to, to move up internally and to move out externally, too. You know, I think there's an incredible set of leaders in this city right now, a diverse set of leaders that are ready and willing to step up and, and take the reins on what's going to happen next in the next 20 to 30 years here. We have a lot of that talent at Say Yes. I see a lot of that talent elsewhere. But we work hard to be a strong, inclusive employer. You know, last year we, we don't do this every year, but uh, we finished number one in the Buffalo News Survey on large employers locally. Um, and I'm happy about that. I'm happy that people feel they can come to work, that they're valued, that they have a chance to, their voice is heard, they have a chance to be themselves, they've got a chance to grow their career there. Uh, so there's a lot of good things that are happening with Say yes as an employer. Um, and more to come. You know, we're going to continue to grow, Jay. Really? Yes.
3: 200 to what? Where, where could, you, where could the Say Yes end up with its workforce? I mean, that's... You know, I That's think it depends on it.
1: which portfolio items we grow. Like, okay. I think there's um, the three-year-old program right now and the apprenticeship work are growing portfolios for us. I think there's more we can do in workforce in addition to apprenticeship. I think there's quick pathways we can recruit into. Um, so those teams could grow. I would also note that we are looking at, you know, where else in the region to say, yes, makes sense. You know, is it a? this could be a good fit in Niagara Falls, right? I mean, and, you know, I have the benefit to – move in a lot of areas and spaces in this town and I don't take that lightly. I think I'm lucky to hear the voices I hear Um, and one of my observations is when we can take a regional approach to problems and challenges and solutions we can and should and you know Niagara Falls could be a home for say yes too. There's talented students there um, that will contribute to our local economy and our community. Sometimes the financial access to college is a barrier there we know that so could we be a good fit there? I think so. Uh, so, you know, you could see us grow in that way, too. Um, but all that's to be determined. I just know that as we do this work, we're not going to stay flat. We're going to continue to innovate and grow. And that often means more programs and more team members uh, to fill to fulfill our mission.
3: I was uh, intrigued by how you described how you have the opportunity to move into a lot of different spaces. Uh, you probably have to wear a lot of hats as the executive director of this organization. For On one side, you're, you're looking at the mechanics of things. We've talked quite a bit about uh, about the programs and where things go, but at the same time, funding is obviously a, a huge key element to this. Is that's something that you have to take on as well?
1: Yes, um, you know it was a big endowment campaign to start with, and you know outside of the culturals and the colleges and some healthcare systems for a nonprofit, that was a big number here. But I would, th- I think we've been very effective in. well, I shouldn't say. I think I've seen that everybody has gotten behind Say Yes because we all wanted the same things and opportunity for young people. So, certainly, our investors, it was originally Strangers Helping Strangers to build an endowment that large, deeply care about children in the city of Buffalo, want them all to reach their full potential. And we're willing to put a lot of money behind that. I mean, that's an incredible commitment that individuals were making. You know, we moved to the point where it is not Strangers Helping Strangers any longer. I think just as important, though, as our public sector partners, and I'd like to speak on that for a okay. moment. I mean, when we launched AS, Yes, the goal was that we would ultimately fundraise mostly from from private sector and that we had asked our, our public schools and the city of Buffalo and Erie County to you know, provide supports for young people to help them on the pathway, which I had spoken about. And boy, have they delivered, right? I have a deep respect for the Buffalo Board of Education and the superintendent um, for the investments they've made Um, equally grateful to the county executive and the mayor for the investments that they've made. We continue to have an advisory committee that meets monthly at this point, and working together at the table is the city. The county has representation from their social service department, and one of the deputy mayors attends. Uh, One of the lead cabinet members from the Buffalo Schools attends. Both unions attend. Uh, We've got philanthropic partners at the table. Both parent bodies are represented. We've got youth voice at the table with a student from Villa Maria College. We've got colleges at the table. The chief of staff for the majority leader and Senator Kennedy are at the table. And it is a team that comes together behind a common agenda, and that is more high school graduates, more post-secondary graduates, access to a good job. And time and time again, I have seen the leaders in our community work together behind those goals. Um, We can't tackle hard challenges alone, right? We all wanted more high school graduates, more post-secondary graduates, and good jobs in our community. And I commend partners for doing that. So, you know, back to where you asked this, it's, um, you know, we develop authentic relationships with individuals and organizations and young people. We work to listen. Are we perfect? No. But it has helped us, you know, take on the lofty goals that we committed to over a decade ago. And I think it's also allowed us to grow, you know, as we've had some success and hired good people. You know, I think individuals and organizations have noticed that. Some of our best ideas at say yes come from In our organization, the three-year-old programming, when we added health home caseworkers, we do try to listen and adjust to the needs of students and families. And um, I think that has certainly helped us and, more importantly, helped young people and helped our region.
3: And if I'm not mistaken with the uh, New York State, just maybe in the last month, a $10 million investment into Say Yes as well, if I'm not mistaken with that regard. And also, I thought I read that the endowment was approaching 60 million, 64 was like the target number to keep this in perpetuity?
1: Your numbers are spot on. And yes, uh, New York state just announced their second $10 million investment in the endowment. Uh, The remainder of the funding has come from Buffalo individuals, foundations. Um, I'll talk New York state in one moment. This was all seeded with a $15 million challenge investment. Um, Potentially a little bit higher depending on where we leave our campaign, but it was one anonymous individual that for every $3 we raised, the anonymous individual contributed a dollar, so you know at this point in time, if we've raised sixty million dollars, that in, that matching investments and closing in on the twenty million dollar range. So that's still going extremely generous, yes. Wow. And, um, and New York State has put twenty million dollars into the endowment at this point in time. You know, I credit uh, Senator Kennedy, the majority leader, and our governor for really supporting this in a in a big way. Um, It was a tremendous investment from the state, one that supports every student that graduates the public and charter schools, again, in funding the apprenticeship, the certificate, the two-year degrees, the four-year degrees. I think they're excellent public officials, and it's an example of great government.
0: That was CEO of Say Yes Buffalo, David Rust. And we close today's show with Angelie Preston's conversation with Valentino Dixon. The visual artist was wrongfully convicted of murder and spent 27 years in prison.
4: You are a Buffalo native. Where did you grow up? Tell us about tell us about where you grew up at.
2: I grew up on the east side of Buffalo. Um, of course, uh, economic disaster, uh, drug addiction, you know, uh, a lot of gang violence and stuff like that.
4: So was this when you grew up? Was this in the the
2: 70s, 80s? And, 80s? And yes. Well, 70s and 80s, and uh, I was arrested in 1991. I was 21 years old.
4: Okay, so let's let's talk about your home life. How was your home life?
2: Well, times wasn't that bad the way it is now, okay, because, you know, when I left here, people still had a certain amount of love and respect for each other, okay? Even though we were all poor and lived in an impoverished, you know, environment, it still was a lot of love. You know, the reason I say that because when I— Went away and came back 27 years later. It was like night and day.
4: So when you grew so you're from the East Side. Mm-hmm. Um, One of your drawings that I saw from uh, one of the cards that you have from your card company, mm-hmm. Justice Greetings, which we'll right. get into your businesses mm-hmm. a little later on in the right. show, um, it shows a little black boy on the corner of Goodyear <laughs> and Genesee. Yeah. <laughs> Is that where you're from?
2: Well, I'm from that area. Mm-hmm. And we kind of hopped around on like four or five different streets, you know, at the yeah. time, you know. So I lived on Bissell, I lived on Goodyear, I lived on Moselle, I lived on Coons, you know. But I, I actually grew up in the Cold Spring area on Wolder Street. Okay. You know, my grandmom had this big house, and I have six aunts, and we all lived there, all my cousins. And then, they, And when I got about nine years old, my mom went out on her own.
4: So you mentioned uh, the the gangs. Was that a a big thing in the area coming up for you?
2: Oh, yeah. But it wasn't so much gun violence at the time. Okay, it was just a lot of fighting, you know, street fights and stuff like that. And, you know, if you thought it was bad, then it wasn't, because I learned how to appreciate that that time, opposed to when 1989, 1990 came around, then you had outsiders from uh, other cities that— were shooting and robbing people and you know, and a lot of my friends start selling drugs. You know, I even dibble and dabbed a little bit, you know, at eighteen years old. It was just normal for us. It was no big deal to sell some weed or a little bit of cocaine. Crack hadn't hit the streets yet.
4: Take our listeners mm-hmm. through growing up in mm-hmm. the late eighties. Yes. Um early nineties. Right. Paint the paint the scene for us about how life was like in Buffalo at that time? And well,
2: I was actually a good kid, okay? I went to performing arts uh, from the eighth grade all the way to the twelfth grade when I graduated. And so I was an art student, and I also painted signs around the city, you know? So I was a little different than all my friends around me, okay? And so my father had always gave me a certain discipline, and he instilled that in me because he had a like a candy store in our neighborhood. Even though we struggled, my father's an entrepreneur. He was still always trying to make things happen for us, you know and so i had that value system through my father my father my mom you know and um but a lot of my childhood friends didn't have that they didn't have their father around you know my dad used to take us to the park a bunch of us in the neighborhood and play baseball and basketball and stuff like that you know and so you know i think i had a little advantage over other people you know in that sense even though like I said, around me was just economic de- devastation, a hopelessness. And, you know, people were just trying to make ends meet, you know. And this is where the drug dealing came in. You know, people were trying to survive. And so you you see people grow in stages, you know, s- trying to survive to driving a Mercedes Benz or BMW. Yeah. Now, these are people that you start to look up to and they become your heroes in the neighborhood, You know, and most people that hear this are like, oh, these guys are violent. They are bad people. And that just was not the case. These guys were just trying to survive and they looked out for us, you know. And so when I tried to dibble and dab and sell drugs, I knew it was wrong. It's like, what the hell are you doing? You know, but I'm going to make some quick money myself.
4: Do you think when you were exonerated in 2018, Mm -hmm. did you get a chance to go back to Goodyear and Bissell? Does it look the same to you? Does it look? better off does it look worse like what if-
2: <laughs> reason i'm laughing i'm laughing but i want to cry you know the reason i want to cry is because the very next day i told my buddy i says take me back to the neighborhood i need to see the neighborhood yeah you know and while i was in there were so many people that were telling me how the conditions changed how most of the houses were gone you know and i was like i had to see this for myself In a neighborhood I grew up in my whole life basically, I didn't recognize. I was like, what street is this? This is Coons. Hell no, it's impossible. You know, 70% of the houses is gone. You know, it looked almost like a forest, okay? And it was very sad. And all I said to myself is I gotta do something about this. One day I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna build new homes throughout that whole area. Okay, because somebody got to do it. And that's still a goal of mine right now.
4: Let's talk about schooling, because you mentioned that you were a student at the Buffalo Academy Mm -hmm. for Visual and Performing Arts. Yes. How was that?
2: Well, I love performing arts, you know, and at one point I was an honor roll student, but I kind of lost my way and school became unimportant when I believe I reached my junior year. Okay, so I was goofing around. I had kind of lost interest, and so I didn't utilize my last two years. And actually, my art teacher were upset with me. I had four art teachers. They were extremely upset with me because I was wasting my talent.
4: Let's talk about the events that led to your arrest. Mm -hmm. You were 21 years old? Yes. What happened that day?
2: So I have a younger brother who was home uh, from college, from Kentucky. He had actually a football scholarship. He's a good kid, never dibble and dabbed or anything like that. And he was coming home from a nightclub with a friend of his, and some guys pulled up and his friend took off. You know, he didn't know what was going on. And these guys pulled out a gun on him, and they told him to get on his knees. And my brother's like, what's this for? Well, he would later find out that his friend that ran off was dating this guy's girlfriend. Yeah, so and my brother got caught in the middle of it. Yeah, he got caught right up in the middle of it. So... At the time, I was kind of in the streets, and carrying a gun and stuff like that. And so, when my brother told me, I was like, "No, I, I really don't want to get involved with this because I've never been a troublemaker or nothing like that. I've never been the type of guy that's gonna bother anybody. I'm just not gonna let you bother me. You know what I'm saying? And uh, but I'm all about the peace. So I'm thinking to myself, okay. Do I know these guys, where they at? I don't want to go to them, you know. So I left it alone. All right, so four days later, my brother called me and he says, Hey, me and my friend, we're sitting on this porch over here by Louis' restaurant. And these guys, the same guy that put the gun in my head, to my back, and he ran off. He said, They keep riding around.
4: Louis on Bailey? Yeah,
2: Louis' restaurant, yeah. Mm-hmm. He said, They're riding around. And like they pointed the gun out of the car, you know, and I'm like, Wow, okay. So I said, I'll be over there, I'll come over there. So when I came over there, I came with a friend of mine's and I had a weapon and I put my weapon up. You know, I said, all right, let me put this up. I know it's there for safekeeping, okay? And so we all walked down towards Louis because where they were sitting was like maybe three doors from Louis and we walked down towards Louis because of the crowd down there. It's like 60 or 70 people, it was a hot summer day, August 10th and it happened to be my mother's birthday. You know, i never forget it because she went to a Pally the Bell concert later on that day. So we walked down, and I said, let me go in the store and get a 40-ounce. Back then, I don't even know if they sell 40-ounces now, right?
4: I, I think they I think they still do. <laughs> so I said, you I'm going here to
2: get a beer. Y'all want a beer? And he's like, no, we don't want nothing. So I go in the store, and I'm in there for maybe two minutes, and I hear shots fired. So the first thing I'm thinking is, like, where's my little brother? So when I ran out the door, he was kind of like, right in front of the store. Anyway, these two guys had pulled out a gun and shot my brother's friend twice in the midsection. And the guy that was with me, a friend of mine's, ran down the street and grabbed my gun and came back to help my brother's friend. He ended up shooting and killing one of the guys. Mm. I ran to my car and pulled off. Like, I just left everybody. I was just gone. And long story short, I was pulled over and taken into custody. And I was asked, was I there? Of course, I'm living by the street cold. I don't know nothing. Like, I was there, shots was fired, I jumped in my car and I left. You know, I'm not going to say that my friend was shooting. I'm not going to say that these guys jumped out of the car and they shot this guy in the midsection. You know, that's just like, you just keep your mouth shut. So anyway, the detectives told me if I'm not going to explain to them what happened, then they were going to charge me with this. And an hour later, they charged me with murder and two attempted murders.
4: So you were you were driving away from the scene, and you were speeding, right? I was pulled over. Uh, so yeah. when were, like, the cops just, like, doing their beat? like the-
2: Apparently somebody called it in or whatever, and they have a description of everything and everybody. And I had a flashy car at the time, so I was known to the police because of this flashy car, and that made me a target. So... When they charged me with the murder, the first thing, and they charged me attempted murder, they even charged me with shooting my brother's friend. Wow. <laughs> they were out of control with this thing. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to be all right. It's, it's was 60 people out there. A lot of people out there knew me. You know, they knew who I am. They knew what I look like. So there's no way that they're going to get this wrong, you know. And this thing will get cleared up. And the next day they paraded me on the news. You know, they had took my clothes and they took my car to see if I fired a weapon okay and they said yeah we want to know if you fired a weapon through this forensics and testing of the gunpowder residue and I'm like okay cool that's going to clear me so the next day when I'm on the news and I go to court nothing is getting cleared up and so witnesses start coming forward like six or seven witnesses came forward and told the detectives that I didn't do the crime I didn't he didn't do this and they told all of them to get out of the police station
4: they didn't want to listen to they didn't
2: want to hear them You know, the good thing is they took their statements, but then they just let them go and they kept me in prison.
4: What do you think the reason for that was?
2: It was public embarrassment. It was we arrested this young black man and we're not about to tell the public that we screwed up here and we made a mistake and arrested the wrong person. They could have fixed it right away. The guy that committed the crime that I knew, he turned himself in and he told them what happened. They took his confession and released him and told him to go on about his business. And I found myself going to trial 10 months later, and I had a public defender. Well, okay, I'm still going to be clear because I have seven witnesses and I have a confession. There's no way on God's earth that a jury is going to find me guilty. What I didn't know was that the prosecutor had coerced two people into falsely testifying against me. You know, and they came in accordance that I did the shooting.
4: Did you know these people? I didn't even know them,
2: no. I didn't know them, never seen them before in my life. And I'm like, who the hell is going to come in here and lie about a murder trial? It's like, I don't even know nobody like that existed. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I've been around some bad people in my life, but not to this extent. Like, who the hell is going to do this? But it's people out there that do it. And long story short, I was found guilty, and they gave me 40 years of life and shipped me off to Attica. And that was supposed to be the end of me. So I did my direct appeal. It was denied. Seven years go by. I had no artwork, no nothing. Okay? And my Uncle Ronnie, he's like, I'm going to send you some art supplies. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Why? Because whatever. He says, you may have to draw yourself to your freedom. You know, he said, if you could reclaim your talent, you could reclaim your life. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) You know? And he sent me these art supplies. And I procrastinated for a little while, and I started thinking. And I'm, I'm in this cell, this six-body prison cell, and I'm thinking about my teachers. I'm thinking about all the people that I let down. And, and I'm saying, like, they think I'm a murderer. Like, this is the worst effing crime on the planet. And I'm like, my uncle might be right. I might have to draw myself out of jail. Let me see Let me see if I can still draw or paint it. I haven't done anything in nearly 10 years. I tested the waters, and I drew a rose. And the other inmates were coming by my cell, and they were looking like, you drew that? Like, whoa, you know how to draw? It was embarrassing. I never told nobody I knew how to draw nothing. It's like, Why was it embarrassing? It was embarrassing because I had this talent, and I had been in there eight years, seven, eight years. And I seen other guys drawing around me because they were drawing flowers and stuff and sending it home. On the envelopes? Yeah, you Mm -hmm. already know. Uh On the envelopes, drawing all (laughs) different types of stuff on the envelopes. I even bought a couple, like sent them home, like here, let me get this for my mom. Let me get
4: you know what I'm saying? Because you could have been do- you could have been doing it years I
2: got the talent and I'm like <laughs> buying somebody else's artwork, yeah. you know. <laughs> so when I drew the roles, these guys are coming by like, Wow, like can you can I you know get you to make something for me or whatever? You know? And I'm like, No, it's not gonna happen. So at the time my uncle was in um Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay, he had lived there for like maybe ten years and the Indian culture was big over there. Okay. And so he starts sending me these images of these Indians and stuff like that. So then I started doing Indian faces and horses and all kinda of stuff, you know. I'm a black artist but I've always I never wanted to keep myself in one space. It was always about I can go anywhere I want to, whether it's a drawing a black face to drawing a sailboat, to drawing a koala bear and whatever. So the guys in there gave me the inspiration, like, you know how to draw. And I'm like, I am i didn't think it was that great. I'm like, whatever. You know what I'm saying? But it gave me the inspiration and the motivation to continue to draw every day. So I started drawing every day. And I'm kind of like the type of person when I go and dive into something, there's no stopping me. I mean, I'll put 12 hours into it. I'll, I, There's no taking breaks. And that's exactly what I did. I ended up drawing for the next 20 years. You know, and my skill set got better and better and better, and I'm self-taught. So the drawing started looking like paintings after about 10 years. And by then, I had I had started drawing greeting cards. And the reason I started drawing greeting cards is because I seen Hallmark and American Greetings cards, and I was like, these cards are boring looking. And so I'm going to create a line that's exciting, and it has a different flair and a different style to it. Then I started studying, and I went to college, and I started reading a lot of books, self help books.
4: You went to college while you were in prison. Yeah. It was. Would you say that it, it was, it, it died?
2: Oh, totally.
4: And you mentioned in the earlier uh, segment that it was your uncle Ronnie mm-hmm. who was the kind of the catalyst to kind of bring the motivator. you the motivator to bring yeah the motivator mm-hmm. to bring you back. But I want to before we get more into your drawings and the drawing that garnered you Mm -hmm. national attention and fame and spotlight Mm -hmm. can you talk about your mental state I could only imagine for someone who is wrongfully convicted and you know you did not commit this crime Mm -hmm. but other people know you didn't commit Mm -hmm. this crime and you are in I mean how how was your mental state how was it for you
2: I had friends that committed suicide while I was there and so I realized that prison is a dark place, and it's designed to break your spirit, okay? And so I had read so many books, hundreds of books. Before I left there, I had read over 600 books. And one of the books I read was, well, A Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Victor Franco. And this guy was in the concentration camp, okay? He slowly seen friends and family members taken to the gas chamber to never return. He survived the Holocaust. But he said that he had to find meaning in his surviving, in his survival there. He, you know, he, he had to find meaning in it. You know, so through all his pain and suffering, he had to find meaning. And so I correlated that with what I was going through, that I had to find that same type of meaning in the suffering that I was experiencing. And then as my faith got stronger, I began to be grateful and appreciative that I was healthy, that I had our supplies. You know, you never know what you'd be grateful for until you're in a situation you find yourself in the dungeon or somewhere. It's like, you know, this bologna sandwich tastes like a my mignon or something like that, you know? You count your blessings. I'm paying attention to the world. I'm observing everything around me. You know, I'm looking at a 10-year-old kid that's dying of cancer on TV. Like, this kid is not going to see the 11th birthday, but this kid is smiling. Like, how is this possible? So... Yeah, I gotta survive this. My legacy is not gonna be that, oh, Valentino Dixon went to prison for murder and he died in jail. Hell no. <laughs> okay, so my one thing I got from my dad is like he was always like super hard on me. Okay, he made me tough. And to be honest with you, that helped me survive prison. That he made me tough when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Somebody chased me down the street, see? he's like, you better go fight him. Like, you know what I'm saying? That, like, you better stand school. up. Yeah. You better stand up. And so that, and I'm not a big guy. So, you know, but my spirit is big. My heart is big. So I knew, I. I it's no way I can give up. You know, I just talked to this guy. 20 minutes later, he goes in the cell and hangs up.
4: Did you ever feel, um, you, you mentioned that uh, some, uh, some people that you knew mm-hmm. while you were incarcerated.
2: Tons of them. Did not no some... one or two people.
4: <laughs> Did you ever feel that you were at that point?
2: Well, yes and no. You have the thought that crossed your mind, but you hurry up and push it out. When you get denied by the courts over and over and over, you know, you know you're not going anywhere for a while. Like, I'm going to be here for another three or four years because I have to file this motion and this is how long it takes for them to even respond to it. You know, you learn these things about the court system. And so... Imagine just knowing, like, it's nowhere I'm going for the next... When if, when you're innocent, you're expected to be released the next day. Every year, was like, I'll be home next year. Listen, I'll be home the year after that. You, nothing's going to tell me that I'm not going to be home because I have seven witnesses and a confession that clear me. How is that even possible? Each level of the judicial body, as they call it, whether it's the state, the appellate, the federal, you know, the court of appeals, they what I've learned is they protect one another. You know, these facts... This evidence went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they denied it. How do you justify that? But they did. So when my uncle says, hey, you may have to draw yourself out of prison, I was on a serious mission now, okay? If I can become a famous artist in prison, then that's gonna shed some light on what happened to me. That's gonna open up some doors, and, you know? And that was my mind state. And of course, most people thought I was nuts. It's like, what do you mean you're gonna draw yourself out of jail? How's how that, what? Who? How? You know, and in my mind, I'm not gonna take a day off. I'm gonna sit in this cell and I am gonna draw for 10 hours a day. And I am gonna put my drawings up. I'm not even gonna sell them throughout the prison. Then I'm gonna work out and I'm gonna keep my body strong and intact. And then I'm gonna keep my mental intact. So I don't have no time to waste in here. I'm gonna read as many books as possible. I went in at 21, I need to teach myself about life. I need to learn all that I can So that I don't be a statistic. Like guys were coming back and forth, back and forth. Like this guy went home after 10 years. I see him six months later in the same cell block, you know, because they couldn't make it on the outside. They didn't have a plan. All of these things. I just became a student of knowledge. I just want to learn everything that I can possibly learn about life, everything from A to Z. And most people is like, you know, in jail, you don't really know a whole lot about nothing. You know, this is the perception. You know, and the truth for reality is you got guys that know way more about society than people that living in society. And at the same time, I don't want to learn so much where I go crazy. You know, you got people that are smart and they crazy, you know. And so you have to check your mental all on your own because there's no one that can basically, no one can save you. People can help assist you, but you have to make things happen on your own. You know, and this is why I just drew and drew and drew every day, and I waited for my opportunity to come. I didn't know it was going to come in the form of a golf course.
4: Let's get into that, Mm -hmm. because I read you didn't really have an interest in golf growing up,
2: so... (laughs) Wait a slow down. You said really have interest? I had zero interest.
4: It wasn't something that was on your radar growing up,
2: kid from the east side of Buffalo? Not in a million years. (laughs) I played football. So Football and basketball.
4: So so why golf? What? If I
2: mentioned golf in the hood, (laughs) you know how quick they would run me out of the hood. Like, who the hell is this dude talking about? And so I had become known as the artist in Attica. And how I got that title is because for the next 20 years, I drew every day up to 10 hours a day. Staff would walk by, the superintendent, they all came to know me. When the warden approached me some years later and asked me to draw his favorite golf hole. I looked at him and I started laughing. I'm like, man, I never golfed before, but give it here, bring it in. You know, He brought this picture of the 12th hole of Augusta. I never heard of Augusta, 12th hole of Augusta. This is a famous golf hole. I drew it for him, he loved it. To my surprise, the inmates loved the drawing. They were like, wow, that is cool. And I thought they were gonna clown me. Like, what the hell is you doing drawing a golf course <laughs> for the warden, you know? My neighbor, Adam Roberts, at the time, He says, Tino, that's my nickname. He said, you should draw more golf holes. I said, hell no, I'm not drawing no more golf holes. What are you talking about? And he threw some Golf Digest magazines on my bunk about a week later. I started looking through the magazine, and I started pulling out the golf courses I was interested in, and I started drawing golf courses. And I started drawing them every single day, nothing else. For some reason, I felt like the golf courses was giving me a new lease on life. It was weird as as hell, right? So I started reading articles in the magazine. So I'm like reading about golf. I'm learning the rules. I'm learning the players. I'm learning this world that I've never had the opportunity to be a part of because of where I come from, okay? And this is a white, privilege, you know, sport, you know, for a certain class of people, and I don't belong in that world. So I'm drawing these golf course drawings for about six months straight, and I come across a column called Golf Saved My Life by Max Adler. And every month, Max would write about someone who was going through a trying time in their life, and golf was the only time that they felt alive, you know, that it gave their spirit, you know, a boost. And so I'm sitting in that cell drawing these golf courses, and I have the guards coming through there. Everybody's coming to look at the golf courses. And I you know what? I'm going to reach out to the Golf Digest because golf is saving my life right now. I had 20 years in. I was on borrowed time, as far as I'm concerned, because the mind is fragile. And I could have woke up the next day and said, you know what? I'm not going to, I don't want to be here no more either, you know? And so the golf was. Giving me that added security for my mental, put it that way. So when I sent one of the drawings in a four-page letter explaining what happened to me, of course the reporter didn't believe me. But what captivated him was the drawing. Like, wow, this guy drew this in a jail cell, and he says he's never drawn. He never golfed before, and he asked to read my trial. If you read my trial, which was a short trial, my trial was only three days, because they. You know, the goal was to hurry up and just get this thing done and over with. So I didn't have a long trial at all. My lawyer didn't call one witness on my behalf.
4: And it was a jury trial?
2: It was a jury trial.
4: And how did the how did the jurors look? Were they all white? Were they black? Were... All
2: white jury, white judge, white prosecutor, white lawyer. Do I have a chance? Very slim chance. I mean, it could happen, but it's like hitting a lotto, you know, and that's how I felt. And my lawyer didn't even give an opening statement. Can you imagine that? Every lawyer on the planet gives an opening statement. He didn't give an opening statement and then call one witness on my behalf. He didn't even tell the jury another man confessed. They didn't even know Lamorris Scott confessed. And so I accused my attorney in open court of framing me, conspiring to get a conviction with the prosecutor. You know, of course, I was nuts in everybody's eyes, like, what the hell is this guy talking about? He's not being framed. How's I'm not being framed that eight people clear me in the confession and then none of them make it to the jury? That's not a frame up. Does it ever
4: make you angry when you when you're when you speak about your experience?
2: No, it motivated me. You know what I'm saying? I have time to be angry and bitter and upset and crawling up in the ball in the corner. I have time for none of that. It's on and popping, as they would say. You know what I'm saying? I was not going to let them win. And I know God wasn't going to let them win. And that that was my mind state. So guess what? I'm going to sit here and I'm going to keep drawing every single day until I get national attention on my artwork. And everybody was already saying I was the greatest artist they ever seen in period. So if my time is going to come. I just got to hang in there. And so when the Golf Digest wrote me back and said, well, we want to read your trial and we want to see what happened here, a week later they reached out and said, we're, we're definitely writing about this. This is just not right. And I knew that God has sent them. And when they published their story in 2012, right away news outlets all over the country were coming. They were reaching out. NBC, the Golf Channel, you know, uh, Forbes Magazine, Apple News, name it, they were reaching out for an interview. I was given a whole jail inspiration. So that got the attention of Georgetown University. And the students reached out, the professors and the students reached out, and they said, we want to use your case as a class project. Because at the time, students had been helping people get exonerated. Okay, and the university um, has a lot more clout than a law firm as far as I'm concerned. So I had become very knowledgeable about the law from my studies, and I knew exactly what we needed to do here. Okay, I was no longer a, a little kid that didn't know what was going on as far as my constitutional rights and my civil rights and my human rights being violated, you know. So once the students got the paperwork, I wanted to give them all the documents that I had. I was working with them every day on the phone with them, going throughout the whole case and everything. And I kept telling them, we need to get those documents that they never turned over, which was the testing of my clothing in my hands to see if I fired a weapon, Okay because that's my strongest piece of evidence. They never turned it over. So the students decided they want to do a class project. So then I told them, I said, I want you to reach out to the prosecutor's office and ask them what they, you know, partake in the the documentary, because they want to do some filming. I said, reach out to them, strategy-wise, you know, strategy-wise. And a month later, my lawyer came to visit me and he says the DA's office is going to drop the murder charge, you know, based on them not turning over this evidence.
0: And that will do it for Producers Picks. We would like to thank our guests, David Russ and Valentino Dixon. If you missed anything or would like to hear it again, you can get this program as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on the Amplify BTPM app. Each episode is also online at WBFO.org. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening.
5: This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of December 4th through December 10th. I'm your host and program director, Tom Barich. December 4th, 1939. The Buffalo Sabres have this day to commemorate because this was the day that the American Hockey League grants an, at the time, unnamed franchise to the city of Buffalo. A big happy birthday goes out to Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls, who was born on December 5th. 1965. And let's stick with performing arts for a while because quite a few high-profile artists performed in Western New York on the date of December 6th, starting with none other than dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, who performed at the State Teachers Auditorium on the campus of Buffalo State on December 6th, 1935. The Belfast Cowboy, Van the Man, Van Morrison gave a performance at the Clark Gym on the campus of SUNY Buffalo, December 6, 1970, and the First Lady of Song, Ella Fitzgerald, performed at Kleinhans Music Hall on December 6th, 1974. And here's a very recent one that is still making news. December 9th, 2021, the Elmwood Avenue Starbucks becomes the first unionized Starbucks in the nation. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website, Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barich.